Charles here. Welcome to episode 63 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Kyle Larson and Dr. Guy McKendry about their article, Parasitic Publics in Rhetoric Society Quarterly, RSQ. You'll hear from Kyle and Guy in a bit, but first I want to share with you a new CFP that caught my attention this week. Vishali Manavanan and Ruth Osorio are co-editing a special issue of the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics on care work and writing during COVID-19. In their genre-bending, carefully curated, and flat-out inspiring CFP, Vishali and Ruth write, We don't know about y'all, but we are tired. Too tired to write academic articles, book chapters, dissertations, and all the other fancy genres that the Academy values. But see, since COVID hit, we've been performing more care work than ever. Ruth for her two young kids who are now home all day, every day, and Vishali for her disabled body-mind after a pandemic-induced reduction in physical therapy and routine clinical care. We aren't alone either. End quote. The CFP continues, We want to make this really clear. This is not a typical CFP. And we are not looking for academic essays about writing in the time of COVID. Instead, we are looking for short, and we mean short, personal narratives and reflections about the intersection of care work and multimodal composing during COVID-19. We want to know about the barriers you faced in your writing during the pandemic and the multimodal compositions you created as you navigated care work for yourself and others. We especially want to feature the stories of multiply marginalized graduate students, contingent faculty, independent scholars, and pre-tenure and non-tenure track faculty, end quote. Vishali and Ruth go on to point out that early reports indicate women are submitting fewer articles to academic journals during the pandemic, and they stress that, quote, we want the writing you do for this issue to be easy for you. Life is chaos. All this care work snaps energy and time, and we refuse to pretend these are normal times, end quote. If this project sounds interesting to you, send your submissions and queries to Vishali and Ruth at careworkandwriting at gmail.com by September 1st. The special issue is scheduled to be published in summer 2022. Like when we teach writing, rhetoric, and communication, you know, if we don't account for bad faith arguments, bad faith rhetorics, then we're not really preparing students well. We're just giving them liberal Habermasian assumptions of dialogue and discourse. And and we know that those are wrong. Like Habermas is the punching bag in public sphere theory, it feels like. And, and we've known that this is wrong. But yet we, we need to account for then what does exist and what is happening so that we can have better theories, but also have better understanding ourselves and better interventions. That was Kyle Larson. He is a PhD candidate at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. His dissertation is titled Emergent Counterpublicity, Social Movement and Anti-Racist Student Organizing. And his work can be found in RSQ, Patho, 
and the Journal of Contemporary Rhetoric. Kyle published Parasitic Publics, an RSQ, with Dr. Guy McKendry, who is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Creighton University. Along with numerous book chapters and a textbook, Dr. McKendry's work is featured in RSQ, Argumentation and Advocacy, and Cultural Studies, Critical Methodologies. Like what we have, because this is documents linked on a comment section or a forum, and then there's these podcasts and stuff. And so if, if you could imagine like an APA manual designed to guide writing on the web in comment sections to convert moderate white folks to white supremacist position. Parasitic Publics is the recipient of the 2020 Outstanding Article Award from the Critical Cultural Studies Division of the National Communication Association. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kyle Larson and Dr. Guy McKendry. So let's start with you, Guy. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Great. Uh, so I am uh, Dr. Guy McKendry, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Creighton University, and also currently I am the interim director of our uh, Magis Core curriculum. Uh, so doing that for this semester, and then I will move into um, a role as the associate director when the full-time director is back from the sabbatical. And Kyle, uh, what is your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Uh, my name is Kyle Larson. I'm a, a fifth-year PhD candidate at Miami University in Ohio, and I'm on the job market. All right. All right. So, cool. Um, you're here to talk about your article, uh, Parasitic Publics. Um, so let's get in, let's jump in and kind of just talk about that. Let's start with an upfront question. What is Swarmfront and who is Bob Whitaker? Bob, Bob Whitaker is a, uh, a Republican congressional aide and Ronald Reagan appointee who founded uh, this group called Swarmfront. Um, and Swarmfront really is, has a, a major allegiance to Bob Whitaker because he created all these materials for them to use. And what Swarmfront does is, as their name implies, they uh, they swarm digital spaces and comment sections in order to uh, mainstream their discourse in the public. And, and they have uh, training podcasts, rhetorical style guides, propaganda databases, um, and they've been doing it for a while now, I think for nearly a decade now. Guy, would you like to add anything? No, I think uh, that's a really good kind of description of where Whitaker comes from and how he has uh, kind of made his, remade his way into relevance and political power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this guy, like, 
he has a messiah complex too. He calls himself a professional propagandist and, you know, Storm, uh, Stormfront started on Stormfront, the first and largest white nationalist website. And uh, in our archive of data, we, we have evidence of just tensions between uh, Whitaker and other Stormfront members uh, because they wouldn't follow his uh, propaganda tactics. So, so he, you know, moved to their, they moved to their own spaces. Guy, when was the first time you heard about Swarmfront? Um, most likely the first time I heard about Swarmfront was a DM on Twitter from Kyle. Um, when he, uh, so I've been tweeting some stuff about the, the public sphere and he and I um, have been going back and forth. He has this really cool diagram from a previous publication um, about kind of public sphere, deliberation, publics, counterpublics. And I liked it. He gave me permission to use it as a handout in my, one of my rhetoric classes. And so we had opened kind of this dialogue about publics and counterpublics. And uh, yeah, so it started with a DM and he sent me this and, and kind of said, I'm working on this thing. Have you heard of this? Um, and I have been working on some stuff related to white supremacy. Um, I did a, a special um, issue of um, the Journal of Contemporary Rhetoric on white supremacy in the age of Trump. And so, uh, yeah, Kyle reached out and, and kind of shared a little bit of what he was doing and introduced me to Swarmfront, and I, I fell down the rabbit hole with him. So I guess that would have been a question for Kyle. Kyle, same question. When, when did you first hear about Swarmfront? What got I, you interested? Well, when I think of researching white nationalists for the rest of my life, it sounds like a really depressing life. Uh, so, um, but I was involved with research with counter digital counterpublics on, uh, Tumblr, um, which is where some of my previous, uh, publications come from. And those counterpublics saw the style guide. They were circulating it and making each other aware of mm. what's happening on it. And then when... I first came up across the style guide from them. I think it alarmed me because I was just like, what is this group that has a rhetorical style guide? Um, and it, and then it just became increasingly alarming of how organized they are and how long they have been doing it. Um, what do you mean style guide? style guide? Just for folks that may not be sure. So uh, that their style guide, it, it's a list of rules to follow. So uh, specific to language, their approaches to swarming spaces and um, what to do and what not to do. Like for instance, they don't want to use someone else's discursive frame. They want to use their own and they will not follow questions from commenters. They say they are the ones to ask the questions. And they even have the term tailgating to describe that. They, they want uh, to, 
them to use the term anti-white instead of race traitor. Uh, and they specifically also don't want to talk about what they call, quote unquote, the Jewish problem, because they see uh, talking about uh, people of color as more uh, conducive for their activities. And and if I can jump in, so like it, what we have, because this is um, documents linked on um, a, a comment section or a forum, and then there's these podcasts and stuff. And so if, if you could imagine like an APA manual designed to guide writing on the web in comment sections to convert um, moderate white folks to white supremacist positions. And so there are everything from standardized arguments. Um, there are kind of replies already built to go. There are directions on who to interact with and who to avoid. And so, you know, when we call it a style guide, like it is a manual on how to covertly recruit people into white nationalist ideology. So, and okay. In your article, um, you describe Swarmfront as a parasitic public. What's a parasitic public? A parasitic public is a reactionary discursive space, and it, it has two characteristics um, that we identified. It, it is uh, to uh, articulate with dominant publics and, and and to articulate against uh, counter publics. So the key problem we had was we started seeing people using counter public to identify both black feminist publics uh -huh. and white nationalist publics. And if right. power is, is at all in the, your framework, uh, that should not, <laughs> that, should, that shouldn't be the case. Um, okay. And so we started um, analyzing this. So we started like needing to cater out what kind, what is the work that's happening here? And um, this is a bad answer, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> but dude, I'm like rambling a little, but that's like, okay. Hey, take it for a second. Guy, you were brilliant in the last answer. You, you're you muted. Yourself, or do you want me to go? No, no, you go ahead. Okay, I feel I feel guilty uh, answering this because, like, parasitic public is your genius, man. I didn't bring that to the table. You brought that to the table. Okay. Um, so, so for us, parasitic public became um, this frame we use to explain how groups that are in power, that have access to dominant power, take on this style of a counter public. And so they argue from a position stylistically of marginalization, but they are within the dominant power. And so when we were looking at how folks were talking about counter publics, you know, if you are a white supremacist, 
especially in the United States with access to wealth, um, leisure time to spend on these forums, engaging and trolling. Um, I, you're not part of what we think of as marginalized groups. And so we can't call you a counterpublic. Um, and especially with kind of the, the post um, 2012 resurgence of white nationalism, actually I shouldn't say that post 2008, right? With Obama's first election. Um, and so we were just trying to figure out how do we make space for this? How do we account for power uh, that these groups have access to, but also recognize that they are sounding like they're a counter public. Yeah. And so we are trying to kind of put those together. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Robert Assen's later article where he's, you know, talks, talks about conservative, conservative uh, discourse. Uh, that article wasn't in public sphere theory really taken up as well as it should have been. Um, and because it makes uh, really important interventions into and two, even his earlier work, but his earlier work is the one assigned like seeking the counter and counter public. But that, I think it was like 2009 article uh, did really important work and, and it addresses a real frustration that we experienced with public sphere theory in general. So yeah, so parasitic publics in order to, you know, maintain power or to grow closer to power, they they want to speak to dominant publics, speak to dominant discourse, appeal to the anxieties, fear, and heighten that anxiety and fear by scapegoating uh, counter publics and marginalized groups through demagogic rhetoric. So let's talk about a little bit about some of the activities uh, uh, Swarm Front specifically. Um, What's swarming? It's pretty much where like five to 50 people go into a space at once and uh, try to control the comment section. Um, what, it will start with one person posting a comment somewhere and linking it. They have a sub forum where they, uh, they alert the others to their activity and the others go and join them in that space. Uh, you see that logic with uh, the, the White Dragon campaign that they're doing, because um, right now they have about 123 people who swarm that webpage uh, at this wow. moment, um, at the first of each month. Well, in your article, you write that this swarm activity is at least partly responsible for YouTube's decision to to close the live stream's comment section. Those yeah. Seem, yeah, those seem like implications with great magnitude, right, uh, for right. our society and our our online interactions. I was watching that that House uh, that committee uh, hearing on white nationalism that day, uh, and I wasn't particularly paying attention to. Uh, swarm front, but I started seeing the activity uh, being reported on on 
about YouTube's closing the comment sections. And then when Jerry Nadler read their very explicit rhetoric that was reported in the Washington Post, I reached out the guy immediately. Um, and that's something about this, this project too, was um, we were continuously updating as we went in order to, uh, it, it had like almost an investigative journalism feel to it. You, you answered that well. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about like how the manipulation of these digital spaces, we, we, could, we didn't have the, we are already over space in our article and we were uh, thankfully gifted more space. Yeah. Um, uh, by by Susan Jarrett, and we couldn't really even dive into yet, like how they're manipulating those comment sections, uh, the algorithms of those comment sections, the algorithms of YouTube, and and orders, so that when you hear about um, you know people going down a YouTube wormhole with uh, the autoplay on. You know, they purposely manipulate that algorithm so that their content uh, will be uh, played and featured. And I think that um, one of the things that frustrates me, because I, I teach a lot and write about surveillance and data collection and tracking and those kind of, and there is this kind of pervasive problem in that we figure in particular ideas of like individual freedom, equal power, free market logics um, around digital spaces, around the internet. And so people don't think that there's this kind of coordinated activity behind the scenes. So they're not on guard for it. Um, platforms, I mean, sure, YouTube pulled down the live stream comments, but they are not adequately prepared to cope with this. And so uh, it's just really frustrating to see lots of conversations about internet policy, about content moderation, um, to, to act as if on the internet, there is this utopian situation of equitable power relations when we know that there's not. Uh, right. So when you're asking about like implications, right, for public discourse and for online kind of engagement, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a case study that reminds us just how kind of dangerous um, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when they would like go into comment sections and there would just be like one person in there driving all this traffic in the comment section, uh, and it's one person having a supposedly heated argument with themselves and, and switching between accounts, and then they brag about it in their own spaces in order to, they, they want to bait people into it. They want people to think that this is such a, a mainstream way of thinking. This is, there's a lot of people who just so happen to like believe, like have the same beliefs. Instead, it's just a group of highly organized individuals manipulating public perception. 
And I think especially dangerous is that so many of um, websites, comment sections, social media, uh, they commodify engagement. Like that's how they determine value. And they do so absent um, engage, quality engagement, right? The, the quality isn't there. It's just engagement. And so if you have a story that gets, you know, 700 comments, that's lots of click-throughs on, on your website. And so then you see that kind of content as provoking uh, this, this consumer response. And so you might say, well, those are topics that are really hot for us. We're going to keep covering them. Well, um, you know, then you get more coverage of the kinds of stories that are vulnerable to Swarmfront. And it incentivizes you not to see your website as having a white supremacist problem, but to see it as having um, a, a kind of success and abundance of engagement. One question I skipped over because you've done a good job of explaining it, but I think I want to come back to it and ask it now. How does parasitic publics, as a theoretical analytical concept, more fully account for power, privilege, and oppression in the public sphere? Well, a lot of the uh, work on counterpublics looks at uh, social movement groups that, and marginalized people in marginalized group positions, and a lot of it has ignored. Um, Aston talked about this in his later article too. Like a lot of public sphere work has ignored uh, looking at the far right. You know, they're more looking at progressive groups and uh, groups dedicated to liberation, but they haven't really um, uh, accounted for these other far right groups. Uh, so what it does is it allows us to look at the new more nuances of power more nuances of rhetoric in the public um, so that we can better identify rhetorical processes discursive processes how things become mainstream because i think that there's uh you know when you're doing work like this there 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 is a ten there might be a tendency to treat it as static, but we need to look at what's emergent, what's residual, what's present, what's dominant. And, and this allows us better to identify, not just uh, have a uh, duality between dominant publics and counter publics, but, but better able to identify, you know, reactionary uh, social movements and actors as well. I also think that um, the kind of position of the counterpublic is incredibly persuasive. And, um, you know, uh, there, are, there are a whole slew of folks um, in and out of the field. Uh, Sally Robinson writes about this. Paul Elliott Johnson writes about this. How, um, like, white masculinity today often takes on um, this kind of victimage position. And so uh, Robinson does a really good job of this. Like it, whiteness is not this like invisible center anymore. It, when necessary, makes itself seen, but it makes itself seen so that it can occupy the position of the victim. 
And so if kind of like the mechanics of counterpublic discourse as the genre are such that they are persuasive because they key us into injustice, then um, we need a framework that recognizes folks who have access to dominant power and are kind of abusing or stretching that genre in a way to reinforce their own power at the expense of those at the margins. And that's why like power is so important because uh, 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 being a counterpublic is not just about rhetorical style, right? And this isn't new, right? The, the theories of counterpublic, we just don't, haven't had good language to, to add power in, I think, previously. And that's, so that's one of the interventions we're making. And so it gives us a way of recognizing when rhetors are using or misusing the kind of counterpublic positionality, but doing so from a dominant place. You all draw on Omi and why not to argue that, quote, in a white supremacist society like the United States, a white nationalist public already exists in its symbiotic relationship with the dominant assemblage of publics due to this assemblage's adherence to the dominant white racial frame. Why is this important to understand when we consider the recent current political atmosphere in America? For us, the white racial frame, um, our purpose here is to kind of illustrate what the, the dominant unspoken assumptions are that uphold right, uh, U.S. American society right now. And so that assumption of perspective, of justness, of rightness, um, that kind of upholds, you know, uh, white as right, um, when that is the base assumption and response, you get all kinds of things around, um, like thinking of Black Lives Matter as a movement right now, part of why uh, the, the kind of institutional response to Black Lives Matter was so violent, mm -hmm. part of why it became such a kind of touchstone for, I think, a lot of very violent rhetoric on the right, uh, it comes from the fact that it is challenging and attempting to destabilize our default assumptions that are made every day within American society and that are facts and fabric of American life. And mm -hmm. so um, you know, we're not talking about like identity in abstract. Um, you know, a lot of times what's so frustrating about discourse around identity politics is that it is treated as these like abstract categories. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about real people's lives and the white racial frame gives us a way of kind of centering that whiteness, especially whiteness that doesn't want to be recognized as an identity is, and the efforts to reinforce and prop up whiteness is identity politics. And so um, the, the kind of parasitic action that Swarmfront's taking is an identity politic to help maintain the dominant racial order in America, which is why they can't be a counterpublic. Right, they are part of the status quo, working to maintain the status quo. Yeah, and um, you know, the far right often 
misappropriates the civil rights and social justice rhetoric in order to do this work. For instance, with the alt-right, we saw a very disturbing mainstreaming of uh, white nationalist uh, groups and figures who purposely have worked with neo-Nazis and other groups, key actors, to make their rhetoric and discourse palatable to a mainstream, what Swarmfront would call white and normal audience, um, as a way to strengthen their power, as a way to mainstream their discourse. We see it with Stephen Miller when there his emails were released and he was in explicit conversation with people uh, at like American Renaissance, uh, the neo-Nazi space and publication to create these rhetorics that allowed them to, to act righteous when doing really uh, horrible work and it and it accounts for the kind of like dog whistle politics that that have um, manifested as well. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. you write that Swarmfront's portrayal of anti-racism is beyond problematic, perhaps best described as a dense community of straw people occupying numerous imaginary discursive spaces within dominant publics. Why is this important for our discipline, higher education, and our larger society? Well, I'll just start off and say, um, since publication, we have seen a a massive national effort to shame 
punish and discipline any institution drawing from critical race theory or doing any kind of anti-racist work. And, you know, when you are listening to the folks who are um, agitated about and, and seeking to stop the adoption of critical race theory or anti-racist pedagogy, um, you know, if they explain what they mean beyond just saying the word critical race theory, um, often it is at best a gross oversimplification of right critical race theory, which is a, a like complex field full of contestation, not a thing. Um, and at worst, right, it is this kind of beleaguered, um, misshapen iteration that draws in all these like buzzwords and codes um, designed to kind of agitate people with no connection to what's actually going on, right? Um, and so I think it's important to understand that the version of like when when they are representing the arguments of others, it's not in good faith and it's not a representation. And so if someone is attacking your institution for adopting uh, anti-racist policies and pedagogy, you're not going to win. I mean, I don't want to say win. That's not the right word, but um, you're not going to be able to directly counter them by saying, oh, no, what we're actually doing is this, because they are not interested in, you know, when we're talking about folks like Swarmfront and others, they're not interested in that engagement and that dialogue. Um, And they want to persuade folks by misrepresenting your position to make you seem unreasonable. So it's not about reasonable dialogue. And I think that's what's so scary is that it makes it really hard to uh, unpack and argue against some of this because it's not on the level ever. Yeah, and I think we are so, like when we teach writing, rhetoric, and communication, you know, if we don't account for uh, what Guy just said, that that, uh, bad faith arguments, bad faith rhetorics, then we're not really preparing students well, we're just giving them liberal Habermasian assumptions like of dialogue and discourse. And and we know that those are wrong. Like like Habermas is the punching bag in public sphere theory, it feels like. And and we've known that this is wrong. But yet we, we need to account for then what does exist and what is happening. And uh so that we can have better uh, theories, but also have better understanding ourselves and better interventions. One of the things that one of the things that I found most interesting is how you describe Stormfront's recruitment, right? And how they attract quote those whom they see as susceptible to coded rhetoric, but whom they also recognize would not explicitly commit to Stormfront's racist ideologies, end quote. And I think, Guy, you touched on this a bit earlier. So why is the way that Stormfront recruits, like why is understanding that important and what's important about who they recruit? I think it's because that's how moving the social 
works uh, is where they want to institutionalize it even effectively. They want to stop the movement of counter discourse and the emergence of counter discourse and the challenge that that counter discourse does to the dominant power structure that they're trying to help secure and, and, and further reinforce. These are also people who are in all, probably most of our lives uh, that they're trying to recruit. Oh, doing this research, okay. I, I thought my dad is, a, you know, my family, like I grew up with uh, them randomly mentioning majority, minority, uh, bringing that discourse and on at, at the dinner table, you know, like they're, they're very susceptible. Um, so, so if we're going to make interventions, we need to account for recruitment strategy. Well, and I also think like there is a sense of decorum and propriety that pervades a lot of mainstream American discourse and it has internalized the idea that being the overt racist who is using racial slurs and who is, um, you know, centering their, uh, you know, they have the white nationalist tattoos and the stickers on their car and the bump, you know, all of this is um, impolite. You know, it's uncivil. And yeah, there are totally people that do that in groups. I'm not denying that that exists. But I think Swarmfront recognizes that there's an audience that has internalized the idea that it is impolite to do that. And so they're trying to find ways to commit those folks to white nationalist causes, knowing um, that they're not going to put on a clam robe, right? They're not going to get the swastika tattoo. And it's kind of part and parcel of our understanding, our misunderstanding of racism in America as, you know, this kind of personal flaw in the heart of an otherwise well-meaning person versus like deep structural problems that segregate the ways people live their lives. And so, you know, um, when someone is accused of being racist, you know, they always talk about their heart and, you know, they didn't mean it. And um, this is not who I am. Well, I mean, if it's not who you are, then how did it happen? Um, and so I think this kind of performative shame around overt racism is something uh, that has changed to some degree. And so people are willing to support all kinds of things that have you know, structural racist implications as long as it doesn't implicate them interpersonally being called a racist. And so Swarmfront is preying on that um, and trying to get folks to advocate positions and beliefs that are clearly racist and support racist structures, but without having to say, yeah, I'm a racist, because no one wants to say that, right? Um, I, I grew up with a family member who I don't talk with anymore, um, but they, as a regular part of conversation, 
um, will use the N word and talk in explicit derogatory ways about black folks and also look you straight in the eye and say they're not a racist. So there's this line um, that, that you, people won't cross or some people won't, right? Um, the folks that will cross it are probably the people who are swarming and building Swarmfront and contributing. Um, but for the other folks, it's just about uh, kind of moving those moderate whites to one side, um, knowing that um, they can't do the things that are explicitly coded as racist, but they can do the tacit things and they can vote and they can support policies and they can donate money that furthers those goals. Yeah, looking at movement in the public sphere, right? Community organizing 101 is that you don't recruit, you don't like there with the the you know in the public imaginary of the the clan member, uh the neo the the Nazi skinhead, um you then get kind of these documentaries and appeals to how do we then change the minds of those people? How, what is a, an effective rhetoric for changing neo-Nazi mentality, uh, which is, you know, good work, cool, but it's also not a, a smart community organizing strategy because you go, you bring in your passive allies to active allies first. You know, you change the, the rhetorical and discursive landscape of the public, of the social, and you move it in your direction. Um, and so that's exactly what they're doing, is that they see, you know, who their passive allies are, and they are trying to make them active. Uh, they're trying to take neutral people and make them passive allies. What are what is what's bugs and why are there methods like copy and paste templates? One user using two profiles or more to generate comments. Why are they so effective and how can they be combated? Well, bugs uh, is what they call themselves or some variation of it, like Bugster, and it stands for Bob's Underground Seminar. So Bob Whitaker held this like really massive seminar called National Salvation to teach his uh, white nationalist ideology uh, to swarm front members. Um, and they call themselves bugs, Bob's Underground Seminar. And the bugs are the ones that raid and swarm the digital spaces. It is a copy and paste, uh, it, it's easy, right? It, it, it's fast, it's easy. It also makes the same language present in the public across platforms, across time, right. across space. And that increases its effective residue. It makes that rhetoric more sticky by presence and encounter uh, in the public. Um, and so it's not just easy, but it also then makes you know, people think that this is a very mainstream idea, uh, a very widely held idea that they can 
that they should also believe. So you kind of you both kind of touched on how this has affected personal relationships, right? And I think while we all can't, you know, go sit around the dinner table because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, at some point we we are going to have to do that again. <laughs> um, big smiles across the board there, listeners. Um, so my question is this. It's a little bit complicated. I'm of the opinion that it's incredibly difficult to sway someone who would be involved with the storm with swarming, right? A, a swarm front user to abandon their racist ideology. Okay. But what about the folks at the dinner table who aren't swarm front users, but have taken up that similar language, right? Because that's the key. And from, and from this person's experience, are those people, how do we can combat those with those people? How do we stop this like <laughs> insidious parasitic rhetoric from, from taking over? I think one thing that comes immediately to mind is, you know, Ursula Orr's work and Houston Baker's work, you know, on critical memory, you know, critical memory is what sustains the black public sphere. And so I'm thinking of how the white racial frame it individualizes, it decontextualizes, it dehistoricizes. So contextualization, uh, socialization, um, historicization, uh, those are where I come from. I, I think of the documentary 13th as truly brilliant in the way that they trace history uh, and historicize the present. You know, James Baldwin says, history is not the past, it is the present, right? So we need to really account for history and the movement of history too. So I think, yeah, I think it would depend on a particular discussion, but I think starting with, you know, con contextualization, uh, resisting binary thinking, you know, Bell Hook says, those who love justice and stand on the side of it refuse the logic of either or and embrace the logic of both and, you know. Um, and also circulating, you know, one conversation may not, probably won't have the desired impact you want. It's not gonna be a revolutionary uh, change of mindset because, because that you know happens over presence and encounter over time and space. Uh, but I think speaking up, bringing in that contextualization, historicization whenever present, uh, and realize that to take a long view of history as well. Uh, to, like just because the engagement is uh over doesn't mean that residue is not present you know i i also think it's really important to engage in kind of naming and framing right mm -hmm. and so when you hear this kind of rhetoric from someone you know in your family who you have a relationship with like 
you, I think you need to um, directly engage um, and, and, and name it for what it is, right? So uh, it is using and resting on the logic of civility and especially within familial bonds, expecting that even someone who knows better is not gonna speak up and is not gonna say anything because it'd be impolite to call someone a white supremacist at the dinner table or whatever, yeah. I mean, you don't have to, per don't personalize it like that, but say like, where's this argument coming from? What is happening here? And so I think that's important. I also think um, it is imperative that, um, we, this work cannot be left to those at the margins to labor with by themselves. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not going to tell people to be an ally because that, you know, treats it like this status. I have become the ally, right? Instead, like you have to be allying every day, right? Showing up, doing the work, being present, listening. And when you're in a position where your voice has power, because you're part of that dominant group, you have an ethical obligation to, to speak up. And especially like, if you've read the article, you know some of these arguments and some of this language to watch out for. Um, you know, I will, uh, I'll give props uh, to my partner who uh, used to shame me uh, for my extended Facebook arguments with folks. And um, recently she has um, started to see some of these patterns in some friends and family members and uh, calls them out. Um, and, and I think it's because she's at this place where she's old enough and comfortable enough that she um, knows that she has some power and that, that there's this ethical obligation to use it. And just as um, Swarmfront is counting on that repetition to turn folks to their cause, they're also counting on um, these dynamics of like civility uh, to silence folks who would say, you know, you're talking about uh, like this majority minority thing, and that's like that's really problematic. And I'm I'm going to talk to you about why. Um, so I think that's important. I also want to just underscore what Kyle said is that this is not like a single encounter, um, and so we uh, romanticize this idea that we're going to talk to someone and they are going to have this like aha moment where they're like, you know what? You were right guy. I was being a white, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, and it, it takes time to do this work. You don't know if, if you're going to be successful at it. Um, and so uh, we have to remove the impetus to do it from the idea that, oh, I should keep doing this because I'm successful and I'm going to be successful. No, you're going to do it because it's the painful and just thing to do. And, um, you know, the timeline is long. Uh, so you have to resist the, like, want of instant gratification. What is the mantra? What does it mean? 
the mantra is what they uh, call their their phrase anti-racist is a code word for anti-white. Uh, and that's what they repeat over and over again. It, it like ends their many phrases. Did the White House and at times the Justice Department function as a parasitic public under Donald Trump? Why or why not? I would probably like to look at specific instances, right? And like analyze those instances. Um, but I'm sure they operate parasitically, like at times. I mean, the Justice Department has often been counter-revolutionary. Uh, so, so uh, and reactionary. So yes, I, I, I would like to look at specific instances for that question. It would be something definitely to look into. And, and it would be interesting to look into where that emergence has come from or how it's operating institutionally. Like one of our concluding calls was looking at the emergence and uptake of parasitic discourse, looking at that process more. And so, you know, the Justice Department doesn't exist in isolation. So where is that movement of the social? Where is that movement of rhetoric and discourse? I would be, that sounds like a good project. As we conclude, though, I want to acknowledge that this research endeavor was, well, dangerous, right? Um, but what made you take it on? Keep going in moments when you wanted to quit. And what precautions have you taken to protect yourself? And why is it important today? When I first discovered the, learned of the existence of Swarmfront, I immediately reached out to Dr. Tim Lockridge, who does uh, uh, digital work um, and is at Miami University uh, for help with what technology uh, safeguards should be used. And he immediately said that he doesn't know if he can advise me to go forward with the project because it is dangerous. And then, you know, I started talking with my partner, Taylor, who is a biracial black woman. And with how this group frames interracial relationships, if something's going to happen, right, if, if there's going to be an attack, you know, they're likely going to, you know, target her as well. So one of the things that um, it made me reflect on was how like the being trained and participate in feminist community research methodologies, the issue of consent with this project, it looks a lot different than other projects. So you need that partner's consent. Uh, and at first we, um, and if you try to, and if you get consent from white nationalists, you just alert them to your presence and then put your uh, uh, partner in danger. So I, initially we, uh, like I, I abandoned the project for a few months and until it was Charlottesville uh, that happened. And that's when my partner was said to me, 
you are the one who needs to do this work. Like, and screw it. Like, go get them. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and so uh, convened faculty, uh, had a group of like four or five faculty advising uh, initially on research collection. Uh, Guy and I, you know, their website has a, a, a box, uh, like they have private spaces on their website. However, once we access that space, we are no longer talking about a public space. Right. And so as researchers, we stayed to what is publicly available and also um, what might not get us uh, alerted to. Um, we tried to have a different citation method in RSQ. Um, we because we were concerned with citation of their work. And so we asked the editors if it would be possible to develop some sort of critical method of citation where we don't further amplify their, their stuff um, or we help mitigate that. Uh, that wasn't approved, but, and I think stuff like taking time, being very concerned about how much time you spend in the research. Uh, for instance, I'm someone who marathon like works, but here marathoning their rhetoric and like spending hours and hours with it, it, it leads to nightmares. It leads to just mental health uh, issues. So shortening that time span. Um, yeah. That's at least my part. What do you think? Uh? Yeah, I mean, we, um, I mean, to that point, like we straight up asked the journal, like, how can we cite this, but not link back directly to their website? Like, we don't want to put, um, you know, so we're very concerned about that, not just because the links could be traced back, but of course they could, like, if, if you're clicking through, they can look up and see, you know, where the attention is coming from um, so they could trace that back and also even just like directly saying their name and so we played with um, you know are we going to asterisk are we going to give a pseudonym so we talked through a lot of those as kind of like deep ethical issues you know uh, Kyle was pretty far along in terms of his process of kind of uh, you know his conversations with Taylor and, and then Charlottesville, but I would say that for a moment for me also was when like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, so my, on my, um, my mother's side, um, my family is Jewish. And so, uh, you know, even though I'm, I'm not a practicing Jew, that's, that's my family lineage. And so in Charlottesville, you know, watching people march and, you know, chant Jews will not replace us. And knowing that that rhetoric is part of the discursive web that Swarmfront uses, I can't say no. You know, like there, it's 
a different version of the same problem of being at the dinner table and you hear this from someone you love. Uh, so that's a, that's kind of a broad answer to um, kind of doing it despite the risks. Um, I will say uh, the kind of toll on mental health while doing this research and being in the discourse was, was just awful. It's, it's dehumanizing. It is um, uh, painful. And it, it really rubs raw, um, you know, m- my sense of the good that's possible within humanity because there you're spending hours and hours riding through complete inhumanity and that's hard. Um, so I think, I think, you know, uh, acknowledging that mental health toll is important. I found myself, um, having trouble sleeping, drinking more than I should, um, because it was just so hard. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what the work is. One of my colleagues gives me a hard time because I tend to choose like pessimistic or depressing things to write about. Um, you know, like I have a nascent project on puppy mills. I do work on like digital surveillance and how we have no privacy anymore and how um, argumentation around climate change is purposefully unreasonable uh, as a way of threatening the future of humanity. <laughs> and um, so, so uh, uh, Sam Sendikuk always gives me a hard time for that. Um, and uh, it's, for me though, the difficulty and pain of some of these things um, is, is what reinforces t- to me how important it is. And there's work that doesn't cause that, that is just as and more important. I'm not casting you know, aspersions on other projects, um, but for me, it's the way I get motivated. Yeah, and um, I remember, you know, to, we saw the timeliness of this project and, and the importance of its timeliness. So at the end of one fall semester, it, I think it was, was it 2018, Guy? I think so. Yeah, I flew out uh, and, and, and visited Guy um, in Omaha and we worked together uh, in that in a conference room at, at his university uh and i remember i think it was the first night opening a document to notes i have and examples of their rhetoric and and codes and patterns of their rhetoric and i remember seeing one one of their one one of their pieces of writing on indigenous people. And I remember it just hit me like hard in that moment where I was just like, okay, we're back in it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, after publication, uh, I remember one of the things I did was I alerted the department to p- the potential of targeting because yeah, and so making sure the department chair knows 
of what's happening and seeing what public information is on the website about me, stuff like that. Finally, in your article, you write that there has recently been a significant intensification and mainstreaming of white nationalist rhetoric and violence in the United States and around the globe, followed by a long list of alarming moments of white nationalism in our contemporary moment, a list that grew a bit longer on January 6th when the United States Capitol was stormed following incitement from President Trump on the National Mall. What do you hope people take up from your article and apply in their own research and scholarship and in their own lives? So I'll just, I'll come out and say that part of the essay we fought for um, because reviewers um, understood why it was there, but said, you know, um, you might need this space elsewhere. Um, uh, Same with um, uh, the editor and uh, we fought to keep that in under, um, you know, the, the basic principle of um, if we're going to, if we are going to write about white supremacy, we're going to say their names, period. Because um, so much of, and I, I've said this already today, so much of what allows us to ignore racial injustice is that for white folks, it is always abstract. Uh, because we're not the victims of it. And in that moment early in the essay, it's our stubborn refusal to let that violence be abstract, to say, oh, it's intensifying, and then throw a footnote in with a couple of links. Um, and, and so we wanted to make sure that anyone reading the essay began by having to hold space for the, the the material pain and violence um, that is at stake here. You know, that was something that we never wavered on, even as we were getting pushback. We we're like, no, nah, that's staying in. Like, um, I'll, I'll cut more theory and figure out how to make it work. I don't care. Like, we don't need more to lose. We need more explicit recognition of material violence. So I'll start with that preface and and then see what Kyle wants to add. Yeah, absolutely. Like we we were very concerned about framing. And I think even Sarah Ahmed talks about how the, like the double violence of it, right? Of even writing about white supremacy is when you don't, when you abstract the consequences, abstract the very real lives uh, that are uh, being taken and being affected by this violence, and and it needs to be recognized. If we're trying to do work towards justice, we, I mean, that's we, yeah, we're not deleting it, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and hopefully, you know, from this work, you know, people. can start recognizing these shifts and these movements in the social, can start uh, recognizing and intervening in them. Uh, because, because I think, you know, with these processes, do look different. Uh, so what are they? And hopefully, you know, 
it's assigned to grad students that, and that kind of like can seep into undergrad teaching and um, and how we better understand and relate to the public. So not let our theories be misappropriated in the exact same way that white nationalists always rely on in order to do their work uh, of moving the social. And I, I'll add, you know, when um, the editor and the reviewers are, are saying like, are you sure, you know, this is a place where you could cut. I think they were struggling with the genre, right? Because a lot of those same like decorum standards about what is scholarship and what does it read and sound like, um, it was pushing up against that. And so uh, it's not that they didn't get what we were doing or that they disagreed with kind of pride in that context. It was just like this moment of like, ah, oh, that's going against the genre of the academic essay, which for us is a feature, not a bug. Uh, but sometimes when you're just called, you know, when you are outside of that dominant frame, your brain's like, what, mm, what is, I don't know what, how to make, what to make of this. Um, and, I, and I agree, you know, with Kyle that hopefully folks see that and recognize, you know, I mean, if it's in RSQ, then maybe I can do it. And some of my current writing, um, I've been repeating kind of that uh, effect as well. Um, so if I'm writing about racial violence and surveillance, I'm going to give specifics and not sanitize it for an audience. Is there anything else you want to add about the article or anything else that we left out that you just want to talk about before I let you off here today? Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Kyle uh, because, you know, he was bold and brought me in on this project. And um, it was a, an invitation that I'm very thankful for because it has been just, you know, uh, one of the things that I look back on that I, I've published that I really appreciate. Um, and rhetoric is sometimes not as affirming as I think it should be to co-authorship. And especially for him as a uh, grad student, right? Um, there's all this pressure of building your own kind of brand and, and that kind of stuff. And I know that's changing in the field, but it's still there. Um, and, uh, you know, he trusted me to work with him on his vision and his timeline. Um, and I think it's just really important to, to know that not all scholarship is, should be, or is best as a like solo act in our field and that collaboration matters. So thanks, Kyle. I, I don't know that I've gotten to say that to you was, in this environment. So I was actually going to like shout you out too for <laughs> this project um one of the things that i'm very grateful for is you know when when um when i got to omaha guy taught me or introduced me to and taught me articulation theory it, it was like it was a real moment for me in my learning process too because i think you know that's the exact frame we needed right like and that's the exact uh was the perfect frame and and how i now understand like understand discourse moving forward uh like it 
that collaboration, it was amazing. And uh, I think exactly what anyone ideally wishes for. Uh, so I think like the way that we were able to really just pull our ideas together, it was, um, yeah, I just hope to have another collaboration like that. And I hope others can experience it. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, fun. hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kyle Larson and Dr. Guy McKendry about their article, Parasitic Publics. It was a treat to talk to them both, and I'm excited to see what they do next. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the big rhetorical podcast Emerging Scholar Award. It's only been a week, and we already have nominations in our inbox. Make sure to get your nomination in by May 15th and donate to the cause if you can. You can find our GoFundMe pinned to our Twitter page at The Big Red. And don't forget about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming in August. You can find more information about the podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.